everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Cooper, writer and comedian who authored 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings and How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings, my personal favorite. She's a former exec at Yahoo and Google, and she quit the tech world to go full-time on her passion for comedy. We talked about top tricks for creating content like writing a book, the pros and cons of working at Google, how much tech is improving on the gender equality front, and what role comedy can play in shaping the future. Of course, we also talked about the products she loves. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on Product Hunt Radio today. I feel very privileged because this is the second time I get to interview you. The first time um, was on Techish and now for the Product Hunt community. We've actually been circulating your book, um, How to Be Successful Without men- Hurting Men's Feelings, around uh, the women in my team. Uh, so I'm really, really happy to have you on the show today and share your journey and your projects and all the great work you do with our community. However, I would just like to say maybe for those who aren't super familiar with your work. Let us know who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm Sarah Cooper. I'm a writer and comedian, but I worked at Google for uh, about four years and worked at Yahoo previously to that and kind of have been in and out of the tech world and finally uh, found my niche when I wrote 10 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings. And that was just based on being in meetings in the tech world. And that kind of launched my writing career. And so uh, I've been on my own writing and doing comedy for about uh, four years now. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. I've just realized now you've kind of been doing comedy full time um, post Google for as long as you were at Google. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, So, so many interesting things to dig into and what you've worked on. I was hoping to just start with the transition and how that sort of like formulated itself in your mind. You were at Google and then you started, you know, writing about <laughs> yeah, how to be successful in meetings or how did that kind of like come about? And then how did that sort of continue evolving into the decision to actually transition away from working in tech companies and tech corporates and actually work on this full time? So I was actually doing stand-up comedy while I was at Google. So I'd never really like given it up, even though, you know, I joined Google, I was uh, in a lot of debt and it was kind of like I was giving up my dream of entertainment stuff. And then, yeah, I just kept on doing it. I invite my coworkers. These shows are kind of like, uh, you have to have a certain number of people in the audience in order to have stage time. And then there would be like a two drink minimum. So like Googlers were the perfect people to come to these shows because they had money and they liked to drink. And, you know, so it was, it was great. So, so I guess that's when I kind of started putting Google tech stuff into my standup. And then it was kind of weird. I came across this old notebook where I'd started this list of uh, <laughs> how to look smart in meetings. And the first one was draw a Venn diagram because I saw somebody get up and draw a Venn diagram. And the second one was um, translate percentages into fractions because I saw you know somebody doing a presentation and going 25% of people clicked on this button and someone going, oh, one in four. And I was like, oh, that was so smart. 
and I decided to finish this list, you know, based on other things that I'd seen. And um, yeah, it just totally blew up. And I think it was because, you know, it was the first time I was taking comedy and putting it with the corporate world, which was kind of my life, you know. So yeah, that was pretty much, that was, you know, I was kind of hoping to somehow get back to entertainment. And that kind of like showed me that there was like this audience of like hundreds of thousands of people who wanted content like this. And so that kind of gave me the confidence to say, let me give this a shot. Let me, let me leave Google, even though it was very stressful leaving Google. I was like a wreck. I was like a, uh, I was having like an anxiety attack leaving. Oh no. Yeah. I mean, not for real. Cause I know, you know, (laughs) <laughs> Those can be really scary. But I, I was really just like up all night, just like, am I doing the right thing? You know, you know, because Google is such a great place. And like, people really do think you're crazy for wanting to leave. Wow. Um, because, you know, it's like, if you can't be happy at a place like Google, then you, you're just, there's something wrong with you, you know? <laughs> That's kind of how I felt, you know, I felt like, you know, maybe there was something wrong with me. And there is something wrong with me. It's just that I... <laughs> I like like doing stuff that doesn't make a lot of money. That's my, that's what's wrong with me. (laughs) Um, It's funny, like the way you observe this real demand for people, you know, in the tech world to have someone using comedy to like communicate about what it's really like to work in the industry at the product and team. We're really big fans of like HBO Silicon Valley and shows like that. And it's funny because often the things that you laugh at, which seem really absurd, are funny because they're so relatable. Um, so yeah, I think it's cool that you sort of like um, were able to you know, turn things that people have witnessed or at least can kind of like relate to to some extent <laughs> into something like positive because actually like, okay, we get a release from the madness through the laughter, which is pretty cool. And I think um, <laughs> also hearing about how people thought you were crazy to leave, you know, a job at one of the most respected companies. I mean, I remember reading a stat once about how for every Google job that's open, there is like, I don't know, millions of applications because it's so popular. Um, what was it like kind of like navigating that decision when everyone's like, are you sure you want to leave? I mean, you walked away from like stock options and like yeah. <laughs> other good things. Yes, I did. I was like six months away from like fully vesting. <laughs> I'm so stupid. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. I, yeah, I really have a problem. I think it was kind of hard for my my husband, who was kind of my fiance at the time. Not kind of my fiance; he was my fiance at the time. <laughs> we we both worked on Google Docs, and he said, "You know, it's weird that you want to leave because you seem so happy at work." And I really was happy there because I love the people, and I love the. I mean, the offices are just so great, colorful, and comfortable, and interesting, and free food, and the nap pods, and just everything is great. I just didn't like the exact thing that I was doing, like my job. And, you know, I had been promoted to manager. And so I had to kind of be a cheerleader and rally the team and say how important all of this was. When really in the back of my head, I was like, well, this isn't really that important to me. And so kind of felt like I was living a double life. And I didn't really like, you know, feeling that way. And so, you know, once I kind of (laughs) told my manager at the time, he, you know, told me that I could always come back, you know, if it, if it didn't work out. So it kind of made me realize it wasn't as much of a risk as it feels like, you know, because it, Google's always going to be there. <laughs> Maybe it'll get broken up <laughs> into smaller pieces. Who knows? So not actually taking a chance on yourself and something you're really passionate about and just waiting and waiting and waiting. That's actually the bigger risk, I think. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, we actually had a discussion happen in our community earlier this week, which was about um, basically like finding your passion. I think a lot of the people in our community 
are still studying or like at student age or perhaps quite early in their career. And one of the things that you often read about in tech news or business news about how to succeed or yeah, you know, what successful CEOs do, there's always this idea around like finding your passion. And the conversation was basically like, how do you find your passion if you're not sure what it is, or if you're pretty good at a few things that you feel like you enjoy equally? And I just wondered if on a personal level, you had any advice to share with folks who are out there thinking, I want to know what my passion is, but I'm not sure, or I want to follow my passion, but I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I was, um, I was in meetings and I was supposed to be paying attention. And while I was supposed to be paying attention, I was observing my coworkers. And so this was just something I was kind of doodling on in this, in this notebook. And I think the, the way to find your passion is the thing that you do without thinking about it. You know, there's nothing telling you that you have to do it. You just sort of do it. And that thing that just comes like really naturally to you. And so that would be my advice is kind of like just observe yourself, like notice where your mind goes when you're supposed to be doing something else, you know, uh, or even just at home, like walking the dog or whatever you're doing, like, wh- what do you obsess about? What do you, ca- what, what is it that you cannot stop thinking about? You know, I, I think a lot of people, like for me, like I always thought I wanted to be an actress when I was little. And so I really thought that that was my passion and that was what I was meant to do. And it just took me so long to be like, no, I, I don't, really want to play a character, I'd much rather play myself. That was a hard thing for me to, to let go of because I just, when I was little, it was just all I ever wanted. And so you might have something in your head, like, you know, you got to be in a band or something like that. Maybe that's not your real passion. Maybe there's something around that, you know, if there's something maybe starting, you know, a podcast about music, you know, maybe it's something more like that. So just be flexible in what, in what that passion is and don't feel like you have to pursue something just because it was like a childhood dream or whatever. And also like, you know, sometimes your dream doesn't fit into your lifestyle. Like I love stand-up comedy. I really want to be good at it, but I don't want to travel the, you know, the country and, you know, stay at, you know, tiny cities around the country and the world. Um, I don't want to be in a bar until two or three in the morning um, every night. You know, there's, there's things that I don't want to do. um, And you have to be realistic about that, you know? Yeah, I think that's great. I think, I think there's definitely something to be said, as you pointed out, for actually trying out what you think that might be, like in your case, acting and being like, oh, actually, do I want to play a role or do I want to play myself? And to the other point as well, thinking about what other priorities you have in your life. That's super uh, helpful advice, because the truth is to pursue certain occupation might require some like drastic lifestyle changes you're not really interested in undergoing. Um, So I think that is really good. I often think of um, that Amazon Prime show, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She kind of like runs from club to club and like tries to like, you know, elbow her way in to get a good slot. And and yeah, there's a lot, I think, um, that comes with a role, uh, you know, that's like one specific job. But I think the same is true of anything, being a product manager, being a marketing manager, being a customer success person, that you won't really know until you're in the trenches and you're doing it. And you can't know for sure that you'll feel fulfilled and enjoy that until you try it. So I wanted to, sticking a little bit with um, the time that you were at Google, 
since Google's such a, a cool company, it's kind of like on this pedestal for people who are in the industry, like, you know, either aspiring to work there, aspiring to collaborate with Google in some way, like lots of people who are makers, building B2B products, and it's kind of like a dream client. Since you've been inside the organization, I thought it'd be quite fun to ask you, what are some of the best things about, you know, being a Google worker while you were there, or uh, however you call yourselves, Googlers? <laughs> and also, like, maybe some of, like, the worst things. So, like, getting distracted in meetings and <laughs> thinking about comics, comic ideas instead of concentrating. <laughs> yeah, I think the best thing are the people. <laughs> I'm not just saying that because I met my husband there. Um, <laughs> but really, some of the funniest, smartest people I've ever met, including the funniest, the smartest person, sweetie, if you're listening out there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound stupid, but the interior design of our offices was amazing. And just the creativity with the, the, the different floor themes. And I mean, it seems like not an important thing, but then you go to a place where it's just like all white cubicles or, you know, other, or other working environments where they just don't care. And it really, it really makes a difference. Um, so I really like that. And yeah, all the perks are amazing. I mean, I can't, can't beat that. Not so great things. You know, I just read that Google has 98,000 employees. Wow. And that's crazy. I think there were maybe 40 or 50 when I was there. Um, or when I started. So yeah, I mean, the, the chance <laughs> of feeling like a cog in the machine is high, I think, with so many people. Um, it was kind of nice being here in New York and Chelsea, because Google Docs really felt like a, a startup within a larger beast. But even Google Docs at this point is double, maybe, you know, more than that, the size than it was when I was there. So I feel like that's the hardest thing. And, and you know, that goes to how hard it is to make small changes. And, you know, the meetings and the, the, the constant, you know, I don't know, just overhead of collaboration and um, transparency and all that stuff. I think, man, and the emails, like if, if there's a post I wrote about how to look smart in email, emails and it, it, it spoke to what I saw a lot was a lot of showboating and emails. If somebody sent out something about how somebody had a baby or something, you had to be like the first one to respond and say, congratulations. Oh, wow. Competitive um, email replying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or like the boss writes something about, you know, you know, I really need some ideas on this. You got to be the first one to respond with your ideas. Um, and I just got, I, I, I always, I, I'm not that smart in uh, not smart. I'm not that fast in like, you know, coming up with ideas. Like I really need to take my time. And so I, I was never, I remember like the first week I was there at Google, a product manager came over and we were like working on something together and I wasn't typing fast enough for him. So he took my laptop from me and he started doing it. And it was just, like, just I'm not going at the speed of this company. <laughs> That's next level, a breakneck speed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, every it was a it was a competition of like fastest, get there first, say it first, have your idea, you know, approved, approved first or get get launched first. You know, like it was just a lot of competition. And I think the reason that's that way is because, you know, people are supposed to be self-motivated and that's kind of part of the motivation. Um, so if you like that that stuff, then it would be perfect for you. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo. Yeah, if you want to live like Roadrunner. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, great. So I 
follow you on social media. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at your tweets, laughing at your tweets. I follow you on Instagram. Same kind of vibe. You're very entertaining. It's just a nice page for me to visit, a nice break in my feed when I check you out. I was doing some research for this interview and I saw a tweet that you put out literally just the other day that's already got like, you know, over a thousand likes. And you say in it, is anyone else worried that software engineers with no people skills are teaching our future robots people skills? <laughs> and that inspired a question that, you know, we love to talk about the future on this podcast. So when you think about the tech industry and future trends like artificial intelligence, what are the things you're feeling positive about, excited about? And then what are the things like this tweet that are concerning you? Well, I have to start with the concerning. Um, yes. I, first of all, I was I was high when I wrote this tweet. So <laughs> I will say that. I, that's my caveat. I, I saw this video of of these these guys who I, I guess were engineers, like beating a, a robot uh, with a bat. I guess they were trying to make sure that the robot could, you know, take a hit and then get back up. I was like, what are the priorities here? I, I you know, like I'm sure they were trying to just test like balance and all of that stuff, but it was just such a a weird thing of of just like this is where we're starting you know? Yeah. Um, so sometimes I hear this like female sort of robotic voice, like telling you everything you need to know. And I just feel like I'm scared of these like idealistic sort of fantasy type ideas of women being, you know, somehow ingrained in <laughs> the robot somehow. I don't know. I'm, I'm scared of like this, this masculine, you know, fighting energy sort of ingrained somehow too. Um, that, so that's kind of like a bigger thing. The smaller thing is just like talking to, you know, Google Home. And I wrote a blog post about this. My uh, a friend of mine said, the command, and then show me your tits. Google Home said, I can't do that, but I, I would love to show you my moves. I was like, that is not the correct response to someone saying something to you as awful. Quite explicit. As yeah. So I was just like, that's not somebody put that in there, you know, somebody thought that that was the best thing. That's a canned thing. You know, no other question got that response. Um, we tried a bunch of them. So <laughs> you know, things like that, you know, like, and I did a I did a little poll on Twitter. I was like, what would what would you respond if someone said, you know, show me your tits and a lot of different responses that were so much better than, oh, but I'd like to show you my moves or something like that, you know, so. Yeah, that is really interesting. I think this idea of ensuring we are inclusive in how we design the future and also like having teams that are representative of the public and how we design the future is something that comes up a lot, especially in the stories that I follow and the thought leaders that I follow, but yet at the same time hasn't had like a huge amount of progress like on the actual ground in terms of how things are changing. And I think the example you just shared is such a good example of that. I'm often following the work of like Dr. Fei-Fei Li. She's like a professor of computer science at Stanford, but she talks so much about this. And she's, as someone that's been in the artificial intelligence space for ages, she's always just like, where is everyone else of other identities and other backgrounds? Because if you just have one quite homogenous group of people designing and creating and then vetting that program 
no one probably saw anything wrong with that canned response because everyone was sort of on the same wavelength and the same kind of person. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is hilarious. And then it goes to market like that. And you're suddenly like, oh, wait, actually, this is pretty offensive to a few people. So those are some of the things which concern you, rightfully so. How about things you're excited about? So you already indicated you've got a bit of a smart home going on. Are there any other like trends or, yeah, I guess just like concepts that you are excited to see develop within the tech space? I think that if we had a president that was a robot, we would have a better president than we have right now. AI president? I would like to see an AI president. Um, I think that that makes sense. We may not be far off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fine being ruled. <laughs> I'm I'm really excited for technology that allows people to experience things that they couldn't normally experience. So, just like VR, and I think there's some technology where blind people can use an app to have someone like narrate what is being seen on the blind oh, yes. camera. Um, things like that just, I think, are really I, that's I don't know what that has to do with AI, but just in that, in that vein of, of, of helping people that, that I feel like um, really get left behind in the world um, and in society, like, and bringing them, you know, forward, I think would be awesome. Because, I mean, honestly, like, <laughs> for blind people especially, it's like, what are your options? You know, you, you can get a stick or you can get a dog or you can get a stick yeah. and a dog. Like a stick and a dog is is not the best, most technologically advanced solution. So I think, yeah, stuff like that. It's exciting. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Like tech for good is a very interesting space. There's so many cool things that are happening, like you say, to help people um, who have limited senses or just like limited experience of the world. And I hope I hope we see more of that, too. I hope that, you know, investors who are listening, you know, see the opportunity to you know channel capital like towards those initiatives. Sometimes I make this observation where things that should be made aren't being made yet because no one's worked out how to scale them or turn them into a unicorn company. and it sometimes can, can be quite upsetting just on an individual level, on a personal level, because I think, well, just because we can't find a way, this is one of the limitations of capitalism, really, I guess, just because we can't find a way to make it really profitable or grow really quickly doesn't mean we shouldn't do it if there's like some other type of value. And I think there's definitely a conversation happening now around you know measuring social impact. I feel like more and more people talk about impact investing and talk about returns on capital in ways which go beyond just the pure like cash metrics or like value metrics. I hope that trend continues and maybe even accelerates because I think tech has not been great historically at putting social impact at the top of things. Or if it has, it's been a very specific type of person whose social impact is increased. Yeah, and it's it's kind of ironic because one of the big selling points of joining a tech company is the the chance to change the world, you know. So um, I feel like there should be more emphasis on that. And there is a lot in a lot of these companies, like Lyft um, is doing, you know, roundup to donate to races um, for uh, to help migrant migrants. Things like that, I think, are great. But I don't know. It's it's just that you know, if you imagine, like, what if there what if there was a a company that just went on Shark Tank 
and they had to present this business plan, even though it was for a very small segment of society, you know, everybody would be like, well, you're never going to become a multi-million dollar company with such a small group of people, you know, that would be affected. So I feel like that's the problem. And it is a problem with capitalism. It's just like, how are you going to make it into a multi-million dollar company if, if it's a smaller segment of society, even though that segment really, really needs it? Yes, exactly. Um, I'm glad other folks are thinking about that too. Well, if there are enough of us thinking about it, then maybe we can actually make the change and enough of us talking about it. So I know that many of our listeners spend most of their day in Gmail and Google Calendar and Drive. Pretty typical stuff. And typically, you're managing relationships with anyone from freelancers to clients to investors to vendors to partners to customers. You get the idea. It's a lot. But what if there's a way to remember every name instantly, find every email thread, even from weeks ago, and never forget to follow up on anything again? Because let's face it, who has the time for that? That's what Copper's for. It's your designated relationship manager, built to look and feel like the G Suite apps you know and love. Actually, it's recommended for G Suite by Google Cloud. Plus, it lets every team, sales, marketing, customer success, and even product talk to each other and share updates all in one place. If that doesn't sound like a CRM, you're right. Copper isn't your average CRM. See for yourself. Check out copper.com slash product hunt to try a 14-day free trial. I wanted to switch gears a bit and talk about your book. One of the goals that I often see coming up within our community, we have a lot of really ambitious makers all around the globe, different levels of experience. Some of them are just starting out. Some of them are executives and companies. There's a real trend for folks to do more writing. So writing about what they've learned or just creating content to give back to the community, lots of different reasons for why they want to do it. So I actually wanted to start with how you wrote it, because from what I observe and from what I hear speaking with the community, there are a lot of challenges around creating content, whether that's writing a book, writing a blog post, recording a podcast episode. It seems like a lot of people struggle with a creative block when it comes to producing content. So I wanted to know how you managed to do it and if you learned anything in the process that you could share. Yeah, I mean, the best um, advice I have is to never set aside time to come up with ideas because ideas come to you when you're doing other things. And when you're observing people or yourself or, or just out in the world, um, that's when your ideas or in the shower or wherever you're, you're doing exercise, you're exercising, you know? So I just keep a running list of ideas. And then when I sit down to write, I'm not starting with a blank page. I'm starting from looking at those ideas and seeing what I I kind of want to work on. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things that it's not just like sit down and write. It's really like something that you have to actively be thinking about even when you're not doing it. Oh, that's so interesting. So you, that, that feels quite counterintuitive. It makes sense when you explain it, but I feel like a lot of people, especially in our productivity obsessed world, almost assign every unit of time to some task they must do. And I could very much see, I mean, I myself have been guilty of this, of thinking, okay, this is a time blocked out for writing blog posts. And what you're saying is actually like free up some headspace to come up with the ideas while you're doing other things and then what we'll execute execute on the ideas later. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, I mean, 
this is something that I think we'll start to see in brainstorming sessions more is this idea that you have to step away and do something else and use a different part of your brain in order to like really come up with something. And that we don't really have that as part of a brainstorming process. We really just sit in a room and just like go through these exercises and try to come up with something. But I feel like you are bet your best ideas always come to you when you're not trying to come up with an idea. Nice. I like that. I think that's really helpful. So for anyone who's out there and hasn't um, read your book, tell us what it's about. Yes. How to be successful without hurting men's feelings is a non-threatening leadership guide for women leaders. It's really just about all of the double standards women face, the contradictory advice on how to get ahead, list of things that I observed and dealt with or did myself. And so, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a book for that women will read and go, yep, I've been there. And men will read and go, really? You know, (laughs) that's pretty funny. Um, because the next thing I wanted to ask you was, yeah, how the public have responded to it. So, um, just to tell the audience the first time, um, I flicked through a copy was actually at a product hunt meetup November last year. So like a few of us like had copies and we also like had some to sort of give away. It was a women of product hunt meetup and we were like flicking through and, you know, you've got like a lot of illustrations in it and like, you kind of like talk through scenarios like, Oh, you know, how men and women are perceived when they're effectively saying the same thing. And it's just, yeah, it's really, really funny. So we were sort of like flicking through this and kind of going, oh my God, yes, like laughing. I took a copy back to London with me. And I remember reading like the second half, which I hadn't had a chance to while I was on the tube during rush hour. And I just probably looked a bit crazy because I just couldn't stop laughing. And then I showed it to some guys in tech at my co-working space. And they were just like, huh? that's not true. Does that happen? And I think, yeah, to your point, it's one of those things where just like poking fun at like uh, the different ways um, men and women navigate the workplace and what is effectively like double standards which are at work and which are, you know, illustrated in research. McKinsey do amazing women in the workplace studies that talk to this stuff. It's just incredible how like one thing like a book can so clearly illustrate the differences in how we are experiencing work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just wonder, like, yeah, like, have, have people sort of like responded in that way? Like, you know, for men in particular, I just didn't realize that was happening. Yeah, I thought I would get so much more like hate mail uh, from men about <laughs> it. I got one piece of uh, hate email from a guy even before the book came out. He just didn't like the title. And so he let me know he would not be buying my very sexist book. Oh, <laughs> so but then it was it's been so crazy and shocking that like so many men have come up to me and said how much they enjoyed it. Um, how they they bought a bunch of copies and they shared it with their team. And I mean, it's just been, I've been blown away. And so like, um, (laughs) enheartened, I don't know what the opposite of disheartened is. (laughs) (laughs) Encouraged. Encouraged. There you go. And then it's so interesting because women sometimes don't realize it's a joke and, and, and do get offended. And, you know, no. they believe that it, it really is a book, an, an earnest book about how not to hurt men's feelings. And that's so sad to me because they think that that's valid. You know, like they think that, you know, they, they think that that's, it's not a joke. And, you know, a lot of it isn't a joke. So I guess, you know, in a way, um, they're right. But 
most people know that it's a joke. I mean, I the, the the title for me is is so funny that I you know I hope that people get it's a joke, but some don't. Yeah, it's it's funny though because yeah, like you say, having a title like "How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings." you would hope would be yeah perceived as a joke or interpreted as a joke but who knows like maybe there are some people out there who've actually been given feedback like hey you should be careful if you hurt people's feelings I don't know exactly no there are there definitely are that's a whole nother kettle of fish I guess what I wanted to then go on to was this idea of inequality and like double standards and the different ways that men and women navigate the workplace. This is something in particular we talk a lot about in the tech world. I think the reason that we do, I mean, certainly through the lens that I'm examining our industry is that we're in a very important industry. Everyone is interacting with technology in some way. Some of the biggest tech companies represent a population in terms of user base that is like, you know, bigger than some of the most important economies and countries in the world, you know, billions and billions of users. But then at the same time, the people that design these products and build these communities don't necessarily like represent those users. And certainly that is something that I would like to change and I would like to see change. Um, I know you feel the same uh, based on what you say. And I just wonder, so, you know, you worked at Google, you worked at Yahoo, you keep your finger very much close to the pulse as a writer and comedian. What is your personal opinion on whether things are getting better with regard to representation? Um, Let's say like more women in leadership, more people of color leadership, or even just like gender equality, like, or ethnic equality, like how people are treated as they work through their careers? I think it is getting better. I think it's generally in terms of like how we treat each other and like just people in the workplace being, you know, not treating women like they're like they're crazy, <laughs> you, know, like not, you know, realizing that, that all emotions are valid, whether they're coming from a man or a woman, like, you know, just get, just the thing with male dominated workplaces is because you are the only woman sitting in that room of men, you know, you are representing so many different things and, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure, but then the, the more women that are in that room, the more we change sort of the norms of, of what that feels like. And I think we're seeing a lot more women, you know, getting higher education and going into the workforce and eventually becoming leaders and hiring more women and and mentoring women and things like that. So I think that we're going in the right direction. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you feel positive. I think for the most part, I agree with you. I just wish the pace of change would like be faster. <laughs> I remember reading some statistic. This might have been Harvard Business Review. Um, otherwise, it was in McKinsey's Women in the Workplace study, which if anyone is curious about these kind of topics, I cannot recommend highly enough. They publish new research every day and they interview tens of thousands of respondents across uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies in the US. And um, it, it is interesting that I read this statistic that said something like, at the current pace of change, it would take over 100 years for men and women to be equally represented at sea level. And I was like, oh, I can't wait that long. <laughs> it just yeah. seems like a really, really long time. Right. I mean, you know, women haven't have just been able to vote for about 100 years, you know. 
okay, that's true, actually. So comparatively, we're making progress. We're getting somewhere. We were so out of the game for so long, so many centuries. Like, we have so much to do. (laughs) Yes. It's, yeah. Um, I always think about the story about Mozart's sister, who was older than him, but, you know, just as talented, um, very much a a writer and composer and all of that stuff. But, you know, when she turned 12 or 13, you know, it was time to get married and have kids, you know. So, you know, we we never never know if she would have been as talented as Mozart or more talented, you know. That is so interesting. I didn't know about that story, but I, I often think about that, like how the how different the world would be if people who are currently excluded from having an influence in it were included. But yeah, I guess there's I don't know, maybe a parallel universe or another dimension where <laughs> we could explore that. So I'm um, sticking on comedy, since this is your area of expertise. I was kind of curious to get your take on tech teams that are investing in improv training. So I see more and more of my friends in the tech world going on, you know, team offsite activities that include going on improv workshops. I guess it would be nice for someone who does comedy full time to maybe like share what value comedy can add to teams so that if there's anyone listening out there who's considering doing it, maybe hasn't yet, they could get your insight. Yeah, I mean, the two biggest things about improv is um, you learn a principle called yes and, which is when you're in a scene with someone and they set up a reality like, oh, isn't this a great roller coaster ride we're on? Your response should be yes, and my hair is getting completely messed up. Instead of saying, no, we're not on a roller coaster, we're in my mom's basement, you know? So this idea of agreeing and then building upon is, is a really helpful idea when you're trying to come up with ideas or you're trying to have a conversation or try to figure out the solution to a problem. Agreeing first instead of disagreeing and trying to find fault. And then the next one is listening, like really, really listening to what people are saying and really responding to what they're saying in that moment. And so those two ideas, and you get to kind of work on those two things while doing scenes, it's, I think it's it's really helpful. I think it's a really great team building experience. Yes, I really like that. I think it's interesting just linking back to what we were saying earlier about like you know men and women navigating the workplace differently as well. This idea of yes and, I would love to see that in more of the meetings that I've experienced as I've been working my career. I read this study that showed that women are more likely to be interrupted at, in meetings and more likely to be interrupted uh, than men by both men and women. And I think sometimes like in certain team dynamics, it can be really easy, you know, alluding a bit more to like that competitive element, which is quite prevalent in tech, like you were speaking of earlier, to just like, as soon as you disagree with something, cut it off and, you know, steer the conversation in another direction. And probably we could get a lot more collaboration and a lot more great ideas if people are like, oh, yes. And again, like sticking with the theme of comedy, I wanted to talk a bit about, well, really just hear your views on this. When I think about comedy, whether it's shows like Silicon Valley or things like your book or the viral blog post that you wrote before that, even going all the way back, there's things like Office Space, that like cult classic in the 90s. It's a film that, you know, pokes fun at corporate culture. Going even further back, there have always been some um, expressions of, you know, what we're experiencing in life through comedy. And I just wondered, given the times that we're in right now, especially if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, like I know we both do and a lot of the product and community do, 
it can feel quite divided as a world. And I just wonder what your views are on like the role that comedy can play in like bridging gaps or building empathy or yeah, changing opinions. I think comedy is huge in that people really don't want to feel like they're being told what to do. I, you know, I get this feedback on my work sometimes that, you know, people read what I write about what people do in meetings and things like that. And they, they say to themselves, oh, I do that. And I don't want to do that anymore. And so I'm not telling people specifically what to do. I'm pointing out the thing that happens and what the response might be to it. And, and people are laughing because they recognize it and they identify right. with it and they're sharing it because they identify with it. And so all of a sudden this thing spreads, which isn't telling you specifically what to do, but it's just pointing something out and it's making you laugh. I think that's just such a better way to get across some something that you might want to change about society. You know, I just, you know, I love the idea of just holding up a mirror to society and then just like saying, is this who we are? Is this what we want to be? And then people can kind of decide from themselves and hopefully the laughter makes them realize, well, yeah, I, that maybe is a problem. <laughs> I like that. I like this idea of holding up a mirror. That's awesome. So before I let you go, being product hunt, we of course have to ask you about the products that you love. So this may be the apps that are on your home screen or maybe like hardware that you depend on. But yeah, this is your time to share with us the products that you love. Okay, so very quickly, I will say Twimage. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Everybody download Twimage, which is an app that I use that turns your tweets into very nice looking Instagram images. So you can share your brilliant uh, 240 characters in a more like, you know, interesting way than just a screenshot. Full disclosure, my husband is the developer of that app. <laughs> nice. Yeah, he made it for me first and then he made it into an app but because I, I'm way more into Twitter than Instagram because it's like pictures are just harder for me. I don't know why, but text is really easy. So of course, shout out to Google Docs, Slack. I just started using Slack. Have you guys heard of this thing called Slack? Tell me more. No, but um, I, I just did a pilot for CBS. Um, I worked three weeks on this pilot and everybody was using Slack. Oh, cool. And I never used Slack before because at Google, we didn't use Slack. And so oh, of course, the industry is using Slack. You should know. That's amazing because so we actually completely rely on Slack here at Product Hunt. We're a fully distributed team. You know, so many countries all over the world, different time zones. We don't use internal emails. We just have Slack channels relating to all the projects we're working on and all the different things that we might need to talk about. Um, so for the time that I've been working at the company, I feel like I've become, you know, somewhat of a Slack expert um, just because we have to use it all the time. We have a bunch of fun integrations as well with things like Giphy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Slack is cool. I'm glad I'm glad that Slack is now on your phone. Don't you wish you had come up with Slack? I mean, because when you think about it, it's really just like, um, I mean, it's just a commenting system. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, more, it's more complicated than that, I know. But like at the basic level, that's what it is. It's like a really good way of just organizing comments. Yes. I, mean, I don't know. I think I, I can't remember who said it. This is certainly not an original thought. Probably some smart VC out there. But 
some of the best products are those that when you start playing with them just feel extremely obvious and you're like, I can't believe this didn't exist before. And that's what makes them so smart. Um, well, Sarah, thank you so much for giving us time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. It's been a great conversation. For folks who want to find out more, follow you online, where should they go? Uh, my website is sarahcpr.com and thecooperreview.com. Uh, Sarah CPR on Instagram and Twitter. And that's that's all the important ones. <laughs> and of course, check your books out on Amazon. And oh yeah, my book, Under <laughs> Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings and How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings. Awesome. We'll make sure that we link them in the Medium post that goes along with the podcast. Thanks again so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.